Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Stephen Prothero. Stephen Prothero is a professor of religion at Boston University and New York Times bestselling author. His latest book, Why Liberals Win Even When They Lose Elections, which is available on paperback, tackles a fascinating contradiction in American politics, a contradiction especially relevant after November's election results. Why Liberals Win puts today's culture wars in the grand scheme of American history demonstrates how previous culture wars played out, and explains why today's conflicts will ultimately result in a more inclusive country. So we are here with Stephen Prothero, author of Why Liberals Win Even When They Lose Elections, and thanks for joining us, Stephen. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, so the first question I want to ask you, um, it's kind of a spin-off of your title. So uh, you talk in the book about how why liberals win the culture wars even when they lose elections. So I want to flip that for you. Why do conservatives win elections even when they lose the culture wars? <laughs> well, because they're losing the culture wars. I think I think the key intuition or the key observation sort of goes here, which is like the culture wars aren't really about winning the culture wars. So so culture warriors on the right getting into the abortion question isn't really about changing Roe v. Wade. Like it isn't really about overturning abortion. It's more about positioning cultural conservatives and Republicans as the sort of standard bearer of that idea um, as the people who are being overrun, as the kind of besieged minority, as um, the people who used to be in charge of the country but no longer are in charge of the country, or the people who are on the side of God, whereas the other side is on the side of moral relativism and so the culture war fighting a culture war about gay marriage or about abortion or about muslims or about immigration um becomes a way to position your your team as on the good side of a story i think that's the kind of key observation so then why is it because it seems like these um the general consensus, you know, people are more for gay marriage than they've been. They're more for abortion. Um, we're moving towards a point where people are more for trans rights. Where it seems like the consensus is, you know, going with these culture wars. But then again, you know, right now we have uh, we just elected a Republican president. Um, we have the House and the Senate are both going to be all Republican. So why is it even though the consensus seems to be liberal, the conservatives are ultimately getting their candidates in. Do you think it's just about who shows up to the ballot or is there something else at play yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a fair amount of that. That, you know, part of the culture wars narrative, you know, is a lot like the traditional Christian narrative. You know, we used to have, we used to have, there used to be Eden, there was a fall, but in the future it will be redeemed and made great again. Like, that's the Trump story, right? Like, America used to be great, then there was a fall, like when the secular humanists started to take over, or when the Democrats started to take over, and now we're going to make it great again. That's a story that isn't about, like, a lot of democratic uh, appeal is to things like human rights or to things like 
uh, voting rights, stuff like that, which is kind of an abstraction, whereas the appeal of the Republicans now and of cultural conservatives is very visceral. It's like, you used to be in charge of the country. Someone else has taken over. Someone else has taken your place. Don't you want your place back? Does this feel like your home? Don't you feel like like aliens in your own country, in your own hometown, in your own home, maybe even? Like those are more visceral, heartstring pulling kind of things. And yes, I think that makes people come out to the polls in in ways. So in the ways that um, that the the democratic arguments really don't. So it really is weird that <laughs> you know you, you can poll Americans on 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 so many of these uh, cultural issues. Um, and it's almost always democratic, and yet when we go to elect presidents, we go the other way. Um, and I think that that, yeah, that has a lot to do with turnout, and it has a lot to do with storytelling. And I think one point in my book is that the culture wars really aren't about the culture wars. The culture wars are a kind of storytelling phenomenon that um, cultural conservatives use really skillfully in order to get their people elected. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like there's this, um, <clears throat> there's almost this impending doom that's kind of driving them to the polls there. Yeah, and isn't, like, wouldn't you go to the polls if you thought your doom was impending? I guess so, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, like, oh, I think the, the, the country will be incrementally better if my candidate's elected. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I have a lunch appointment. Maybe I can't make it to the polls. <laughs> So obviously this election was a surprise to a lot of people, especially liberals. Uh, So what would you say to liberals who are disappointed or maybe worried about the election of Trump? Well, I think one thing is, is that probably in the long term, a lot of the culture war questions are not going to be overturned. You know, like, I mean, it's really interesting that there's so many people Trump is appointing to his cabinet that are anti-LGBTQ people. Like, that's really striking. Um, anti-gay marriage people, but I really don't think there's much to be done there. The cultural consensus is really strongly in favor of gay marriage. Um, we have a Supreme Court ruling in favor of gay marriage. That ruling's not likely to be overturned. Um, I don't think Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned on abortion, but I think that the strategy of uh, cultural conservatives on this, which is to chip away at it, will probably continue with various laws in, in states that will go up to the Supreme Court about whether they're legal or not, like this new law that was passed in uh, in Ohio and signed by Governor Kasich just a few days ago, um, saying that you know you can have abortion after 20 days, which goes against the old Roe v. Wade framework of the first trimester as being pretty sacrosanct. Um, so. I don't know that there's going to be a a wholesale overturning there, but I think the conversation is shifting really strongly, um, and the people that are being empowered and have already been empowered are more the people that I describe in the book as the sort of exclusion party rather than the inclusion party. So one of the things I talk about is how culture wars typically aren't about abortion and gay marriage throughout U.S. history. If you have a broader view, they're usually about who is and who isn't a real American. Um, something more like what my colleague here at BU, uh, Anthony Petro, refers to as moral citizenship. Like, who is really my neighbor in, in, in the um, in the nation? And the culture wars consistently have been fought over that. Like, can Catholics be included? Can Mormons be included? Uh, can Jews be included? And now, can Muslims be included? Or can gay and lesbian or trans people be included? And I just think that those uh, trends are not going to be overturned. And I think that what's happening now is a kind of a 
kind of a primal scream against that fact rather than a reversal of that fact. I think a lot of people will be, will be very reassured to hear that. Um, so now I want to ask you a question in terms of um, conservatism. So obviously in the book you talk about these culture wars, um, how liberals almost consistently win them throughout U.S. history. Um, and it seems like conservatism, conservatism, or at least cultural conservatism, is a lost cause in a sense. So do you think there's something that is fundamentally wrong or just not valid about cultural conservatism? Or do you think there are some valid things to be gained from it in terms of making policy? I think there's definitely valid things about cultural conservatism. And I think we're probably all cultural conservatives on certain issues. You know, I grew up on Cape Cod, and I love Cape Cod. I have this nostalgia for old Cape Cod, like all the ways that Cape Cod has changed since I was a kid, you know? Um, I go to this ice cream store that has these super bumpy floors with really bad chairs um, with all the old signage, and I think they make the best ice cream in the world. And if they were to fix that store and make it look better with a fancy new sign, I would hate it and I wouldn't want to go anymore and I would feel sad and I would feel like I'd lost something. I might even want to punch somebody about it. (laughs) Like, it matters to me. So I'm a cultural conservative about, you know, my hometown um, and about that ice cream shop. And uh, so I get it. Like, I get the idea of having a sense that something you value, like forms of culture, this is the way I describe it in the book, you know, a cultural conservative is someone who, uh, you know, laments the passing away of old forms of life, and and then a culture warrior is someone who is willing to fight about that. So, you know, I get that, and I think there's forms of life that are, you know, worth fighting about. Um, I think there's forms of life that are worth uh, lamenting. Uh, But the fundamental... um, arc of uh, American history on this issue of inclusion and exclusion is toward inclusion. You know, when we started our nation, women couldn't vote. You know, African Americans, um, uh, you know, who were slaves, right, the uh, the slave population, they weren't citizens. They, you know, didn't have rights. Um, You know, that's shifting, you know, and uh, so... You, non-white persons didn't used to be able to vote. You know, now non-white persons can vote. Women can vote. Uh, so it's not like the picture is all rosy. There's a lot of there's a lot of, um, of battles there. But um, you know, I think it's moving in this in this direction of inclusion. And I think I'm not sympathetic. I mean, I know I'm not sympathetic to the view that uh, you know we we white people need to take our country back, or we Christians need to take our country back. I don't think that's in the, in the spirit of America. I think that at least the best spirit of America is that more inclusive voice. Absolutely. Um, one interesting thing I found in your book is uh, these sort of contradictions between liberal and conservative viewpoints over history. Um, so a, f- a few examples of that. Uh, when you talk about the conservatives who are anti-Mormon, one of their main arguments, they um, compare anti-Mormonism to anti-slavery. So you know they're for that very liberal cause of freeing the slaves, but they're also conservatives when it comes to Mormons. And then uh, the liberals who were trying to repeal prohibition comparing it to um, desegregation and interracial marriage. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Abraham Lincoln has this interesting uh, line where he talks about, you know, two, you know, a a conservative and a liberal are members of two different parties who just start, uh, like, a fight, like they start to wrestle in the mud, 
and when they come out of the mud like they're wearing each other's clothes like they've ripped each other's shirts off and they're putting on the wrong shirt you know as a way to talk about the ways in which parties shift uh, have shift positions i mean one i've been thinking a lot about lately is the issue of the common core because that comes up in the in the culture wars in the 1980s especially and it's conservatives who are arguing for the common core right so there's liberal um liberals are arguing for what we now call like identity politics you know for women uh women's studies classes in college or african-american studies departments in college or ethnic studies classes and then and that's the liberal view and then the the conservative view is to say no we should have a common core that doesn't focus on particular ethnic or gender or racial groups or religious groups but focuses on what we share as americans like this common core that was a very conservative idea and then in recent years the, the common core thing is now this horrible imposition of the federal government on the rights of states that's the way conservatives see it who now who now reject uh reject the common core so there's a lot of um there's a lot of examples of this in u.s history and it's partly why it's confusing to figure out like which side is conservative and which side is liberal i mean another Another classic example is, you know, Thomas Jefferson was in favor of states' rights, and he was in favor of limited federal government, and that in the beginning was considered to be a liberal position. But but now, um, after uh, the New Deal, when um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt expanded the role of the federal government in order to help poor people who were hurt by the Great Depression, now that expanded federal government the so-called welfare state is seen as a liberal thing and the minimal government is seen as a as a conservative thing so this is happening all the time in american history and people forget that history and so they just assume that their position is sort of eternally conservative or eternally liberal and that's it's really not the case but these things really flip over time and arguments for liberal or conservative positions often are also promoting the opposite viewpoint in, in a sense yeah, and one of the things that I say in the book, and I think this is hopeful as well, is that is that our, our culture wars end. Like, we're not still fighting a culture war about whether Catholics can be good Americans. Like, we're not. Like, nobody's doing that. You know, if they're doing that, they're in a bunker somewhere, you know, with their own, you know, Facebook page. But, like, people aren't genuinely arguing that. They're not genuinely arguing about whether Mormons can be good Americans or whether Thomas Jefferson is a good American. You know, that was the first culture war in the book is the election of 1800, which is about whether Jefferson is just too radical religiously to be president. Well, you know, he's on Mount Rushmore now. So so we're not fighting about that either. Um, so, culture, so my argument is culture wars keep going, keep happening, but individual culture wars come to an end. And when they come to an end, they typically yield some kind of consensus. And that consensus is for a more inclusive America. And so it's no longer a liberal position to think Catholics can be citizens or to think that Mormons can be, you know, part of the American family. That's not a liberal position anymore. It's just an American position. So um, we do get to some kind of consensus on these issues typically. And I think that's where we're headed on gay marriage. I don't think we're headed that quickly on abortion. I think we're still pretty evenly split on that. But um, if you look even at evangelicals, and especially young evangelicals, young evangelicals are in favor of, of gay marriage, and I, I think that trend's likely to continue. Now, obviously, a lot of these culture wars revolve around religion, uh, and you talk a lot in the book about this um, kind of ongoing battle throughout the U.S. history about whether the United States is a Christian nation. What do you make of that? Is the United States a Christian nation or not? 
Well, the United States is a nation that keeps fighting about whether it's a Christian nation. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, um, but, I mean, there's no simple answer. I mean, this is, I guess, I'm being a nerd, a nerdy academic now, but... Oh, please go for it. That's uh, what this podcast is for. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly, um, you know, we have a secular constitution, and we have separation of church and state in the First Amendment, and we have religious liberty in the First Amendment. So we're not a Christian nation by law. But but the founders, just as they compromised on slavery, they compromised on religion, and that's actually one of the reasons why these culture wars about religion continue, because although they gave us religious liberty and they, they separated church and state at the federal level, they retained uh, religious establishment at the state level, and they retained uh, chaplains in the Congress with prayers that opened sessions of Congress. Um, we had very early on uh, inauguration ceremonies where presidents would put their hands on Bibles and swear, so help me God. So we've always had uh, public displays of religion that the French find abhorrent, for example. We've always been more Christian, more of a Christian nation than the French have been since the French Revolution. And I think part of the source of the culture wars is that we don't know exactly how much religion we're supposed to have in public, and we don't really know what sort of religion we're supposed to have in public. So for many, many years, we had this kind of generic, vaguely Christian or vaguely Judeo-Christian or vaguely Protestant kind of piety that would intrude into presidential inaugural speeches or State of the Union speeches or sessions of Congress and stuff like that. Uh, and then in recent years, that's kind of become more Christian-y, you know, since the late 70s, where there's more talk of Jesus uh, with our presidents, and there's more of a sense that our public religiosity should be more explicitly Christian rather than kind of vaguely theistic or vaguely Judeo-Christian or something like that. Um, but I will say that um, one reason Trump uh, won this election was because he won the Christian vote, and he didn't just win the white evangelical Christians. He won white Catholics and he won white mainline Protestants as well. And uh, so he really won not just the white vote, but he won the, the Christian vote, the white Christian vote. And uh, those are people who, to a great extent, want to hang on to that um, nostalgic view of uh, the United States as a Christian nation. And they don't want to think about it as a pluralistic country that has uh, Hindus and, and Buddhists and Confucians and, and Jains and you know, Muslims. Um, they want the public culture to be uh, to be exclusively Christian, and I think that too is a losing battle. I think that's more of a last gasp uh, cry against what's happening than it is a sign that uh, we're reverting back to some Christian nation status. Interesting, interesting. Um, so then, in terms of going forward, because obviously this election. It's very divisive. Everything is so polarized right now. Uh, liberals and conservatives are more divided than ever. What do you think, going forward, liberals can gain from conservatives and conservatives can gain from liberals in terms of sort of bringing everything back together? Well, I think right now it's really important to um, revive a kind of, you know, positive nationalism or positive patriotism. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that nationalism can can do, like going to war against other other countries. Um, but I think it's important to uh, remember that throughout American history, we've had um, exemplars who are both conservatives and liberals, and who are both Democrats and and and, pro and uh, Republicans, who have reminded us to 
put our nation's interest above our party's interest or put our nation's interest above our self-interest. And in the book, I refer to this as our great tradition of conciliation. And we've had it from the very beginning with George Washington saying that he feared the mischiefs of the spirit of party, he said in his farewell address as he was leaving the presidency. You know, be careful of these political parties because they're going to try to command um, loyalty that is greater than the national loyalty. And after Thomas Jefferson was elected in this, you know, really bitter election of 1800, which rivaled the bitterness of the election of 2016, um, he said, you know, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. You know, that would be like us saying now, we are all Republicans, we are all Democrats, referring to the two political parties at the time. Like, see ourselves as part of this one um, national uh, fabric. You know, you have John F. Kennedy saying, you know, civility is not a sign of weakness, or Patrick Henry saying, you know, I'm, an, I'm not a Virginian, I'm an American. You know, I'm putting my American interest above my state uh, interest. Or Barack Obama at the... Uh, the um, Democratic uh, National uh, Convention in 2004, you know, saying we have red states and blue states, but we shouldn't think about our states that way. We should all think about ourselves as members of the United States or George W. Bush when he was elected um, in a, you know, really bitter contest that was decided by the Supreme Court, you know, saying that we shouldn't be a house uh, divided, you know, referring back to Lincoln's um, a description of the United States in the midst of the Civil War. So we have this tradition, right, of people who are aware of the threats to our uh, national uh, politics and the threats coming from self-interest and from party interest and telling us to check those. And unfortunately, right now, we're in a period where the, it's very difficult for members of either party to uh, push for the national interest rather than for their uh, party's interest. And we all have to hope that that will somehow come to an end. Absolutely. Well, we will we will see what happens about that. Uh, so one more question I wanted to ask you, uh, since this is an academic podcast, we ask this to all of our guests. Who was your favorite teacher? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I, that's a tough one. I, I had a lot of favorite teachers, but, you know, <sighs> one of my favorite teachers in college uh, was Richard Fox, and uh, it's kind of funny because Richard and I ended up producing competing books years ago where I wrote a book called American Jesus, and he wrote a book called Jesus in America. They came out the same year, um, maybe 10 years ago. But when I was an undergrad, uh, Richard was my first history teacher, and I had vowed when I went to college that I was going to study every subject except for history because history was so boring. History was about names and memorizing names and dates. Like, why would anyone want to do that? And of course, that may be what some high school history classes are about, but it's not what actual history classes are about. And he really uh, taught me that when I had been an astronomy and physics major, and I left that major to become American, to do American studies. And so some friends of mine were taking this U.S. history class that Richard was teaching, and I took it, and I was just immediately hooked. He, he made it clear that history was about you know, arguing about the past and the significance of the past, not about memorizing what happened as if that is some objective, you know, thing. And uh, he was really interested in conflict in history and he was really interested in religion and American history. And he was the person who really taught me that the religious people, religious ideas, religious practices, religious institutions have all played a really important role 
in uh, American history, and he really got me going on my my own professional life, which focuses on uh, religion in the United States, and then and then secondarily, you know, the influence of religion on on American politics. So he now teaches at University of Southern California, and uh, he was yeah, he was uh, a huge influence on me. And look at where it brought you today with this book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. A lot of the themes uh, that were covered in that class, they, they show up in, uh, in this book as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for a lovely chat. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. No problem. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.